0: You've probably heard about Fiverr, a global marketplace of skilled freelancers. But sometimes businesses need to manage multiple complex projects simultaneously. That's why they created Fiverr Pro, where you can gain access to the very best freelancers, streamline your workflow with a user-friendly dashboard, and collaborate on projects with your team. Designed to handle projects of any size, Fiverr Pro is the ultimate freelance solution for your business. With no hidden membership or subscription fees to get started, visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr, dot rcom and use code VOX.
1: Businesses count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And whether you're going into your office or working from home, you need an integrated PC solution. You need the unrivaled built-for-business PC platform that gives you performance, security, manageability, and stability for your entire PC fleet. The Intel vPro platform. It helps you take care of business and can remotely update, restore, and secure your PCs, even if a system is outside of the firewall. Intel vPro, built for what IT heroes do, built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes.
0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. Today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and to honor the great civil rights leader, I wanted to spend some time talking about his impact on our politics today and also about his legacy. My guest is Dr. Andre Gillespie, She's a professor of political science at Emory University and an expert in campaigns, elections, and voting behavior. Her work is focused on Black politics, particularly the leaders of the post-civil rights generation. Dr. Gillespie, thanks for joining me. Thank you. So obviously we could talk for hours and hours and days and days about the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. But I thought on a day like this, there are a few spots we could hit and talk about Dr. King. So remind folks who may not be so well versed and who understand Dr. King to be basically universally revered, at least by people's rhetoric, if not necessarily always in their hearts, that when he was alive and at the maximum of his power, at the maximum of his popularity,
1: how popular was he? He wasn't universally popular at the height um, of his notoriety. So if we think about that period in the early to mid-1960s, say from the March on Washington uh, to the time that he came out against the Vietnam War, if you look at public opinion data from that era, um, you actually find out that he's a, a pretty controversial figure. So the data that we would use to infer favorability, or I guess the, the things that would be comparable to a favorability rating today, certainly show that uh, he was really controversial. And There were a lot of people who viewed him with either disdain or skepticism. Um, and we forget that because everybody seems to claim King these days. Yes, they um, do.
0: We're going to get to some of the false claiming of King in a moment. Yeah.
1: But some of these people, if they had been alive and, and, and socially and politically active back in the early 1960s, these would have been people who would have opposed him. And I think we need to be really reflective of that, especially when we choose to appropriate him in, in, in probably ahistorical ways.
0: Yeah, you, you mentioned some phrases like people were skeptical of him. Were there people who feared him or feared what he stood for?
1: Certainly, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm making inference inferences here. If if we think about COINTELPRO, so we know that the FBI uh, was following King at 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 every turn as he was following other civil civil rights leaders. Um, the idea that you know that our, our, our federal government would be abusing a criminal justice apparatus in order to uh, keep an eye on the activities of civil rights leaders because they viewed them as agitators and viewed them as potentially dangerous is, you know, something that that would be of note. Um, You know, King ultimately stood for shaking up the status quo. and, And we often forget that. Uh, For a number of reasons, not just because of the ways that we misappropriate and co-opt him today, uh, but also uh, during the time period today, his stance on nonviolence um, looks Pollyannish to some people and doesn't look radical enough. But we also forget that in the... uh, late fifties and early 1960s, the idea of going out and protesting and standing up and publicly resisting um, segregation was seen as very radical at the time. Um, And so I think we need to make sure that we're always thinking about these things in context and realize that what King stood for, even if it seems quaint today was actually very, very radical for its time.
0: Describe, if you will, the level of King's popularity in the black community, because in popular Discussions, there was another figure who overlapped with King, also met a tragic death by assassination. Malcolm X. What, what was the level of his popularity within the Black community at his height?
1: Um, so the public opinion data. Um, for African-Americans during that time period in general is scant. So when I think of the things that I've seen kind of looking through historical archives, I haven't seen um, that type of data that could parse out how many people were supporters of of Martin Luther King versus how many people were supporters of Malcolm X. Uh, But we do know from the historical record uh, that King and the SELC tended to be most effective in the Southern region where they were primarily located and where they primarily operated King did try to expand the civil rights movement um, beyond the South. Um, He also tried to expand the civil rights movement behind the the basic things that people agreed on, like trying to dismantle segregation in public accommodations and and in voting rights. And when he tried to expand the message to be more complex, to talk about economic justice um, and to to venture into uh, foreign policy and international politics and to oppose the Vietnam War, he met with resistance in various places. So in the anti-war stance, Most people would attribute his anti-war stance as actually contributing to the SELC and the civil rights movement's ability in general um, to raise money during uh, the late 1960s. It's also true that there were other causes that were competing for funding during that time period. But in particular, when uh, King tried to expand the civil rights movement and and, and move north, he spent a summer in Chicago, uh, and there he was not necessarily greeted with open arms. And that actually highlights some of, of, of the differences in terms of uh, socially how Black communities were organized outside of the South, um, where you couldn't make the assumptions that everybody went to church in the same way um, as they may have done in the South, and that wasn't actually 100% true either. And also that there may be class differences where a uh, middle-class, well-educated person like Dr. King may be met with resistance from other people who had experienced a type of systemic poverty that limited their chances. Uh, And then we could also just talk about some of the tactical differences. Um, And so, you know, when King and and, and the SCLC uh, were first kind of coming to prominence and notoriety, there were folks who wanted to take a much more measured approach.
0: How do you explain King's arc reputationally from being controversial in the 60s to being pretty universally admired, at least outwardly today, even though along the way, as we celebrate Martin Luther King Day, even the creation of this holiday was stridently opposed by a number of politicians. How how did that happen?
1: You know, I think that there are a couple of things. I think one, we have to think about Uh, media archetypes and the idea of unifying around personalities. Um, And so while King was a driving force behind the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and, you know, some people use that as a critique of having uh, leadership by personality and, and kind of what the structural challenges that actually provide social movements and organizations In America, we like to uh, think about media-appointed leaders. And so if somebody is getting a lot of attention, then that person... Um, becomes a leader rightly or wrongly. And so King certainly benefited um, from a lot of the media attention that he got. And our challenge today is to remember the unsung heroes who were working alongside King, um, particularly the people who would have been even further marginalized, um, you know, in Black communities for other characteristics like race or sexuality, who were doing the work alongside him and couldn't, and King wouldn't have been able to do the things that he was able to do, if not for their leadership and their assistance. Also, um, you know, there is the idea of martyrdom, um, and there are philosophers who could talk about this much better than I could, uh, but the idea that uh, he was killed at such a young and tragic age that actually helps people to kind of rally around him, and that might actually be eliciting a certain type of psychological response, where uh, you're more willing to embrace his ideas, or at least claim to embrace his ideas, because he can't be a threat, he can't evolve anymore. And I think, I think the martyrdom,
0: that, yeah, I think that I think it's an exceptional point. I, I think that also accounts for JFK's uh, reputation.
1: Right, we hold the these people times. in like amber, and that allows them to be two dimensional and static. And that actually doesn't allow us to embrace the complexities that they lived. And also understanding that had they been able to live, they may have done different things. They may have continued on the trajectory they were on at the time of their death. They also could have taken very, very different turns.
0: I've always marveled at many things having to do with King. And one of those things is just how young he was. And he doesn't appear young. So he was killed at age 39. He never made it to 40 when he gave the March on Washington speech, the most famous speech he ever delivered, I believe he was like 33, right? Or, or 34. And he doesn't present, no offense to 30-somethings in the modern world, but he doesn't present like a 30-something. Is there something about his bearing and the baritone quality of his voice and his maturity that allowed him to come to the fore in the civil rights movement? Could Could he have done that without having some of those physical qualities?
1: Well, you know, it's funny, I, I don't feel qualified to be able to talk about the timber of his voice or even the homiletic tradition that he's in that kind of comes out of the black church, uh, that certainly elicits a particular rhetorical style. Uh, but there are a couple of things that 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 I would point out. Um, I think just in terms of uh like development and life stage. Um, psychologists would probably talk about sort of different types of conditioning uh, today, um, where, at, you know, a 34-year-old in the early 1960s would have been expected to be married, to have children, and to have kind of been a fully fledged adult in ways that because of advanced schooling and actually also because of, you know, increases in longevity generally, we don't necessarily impose on people at the same uh, age status today. Um, So I think that that's part of it. Like everybody seemed older um, back then. So, you know, I think about my own grandparents during that era who were a little bit older and you're like, wow, at that stage, they had been married almost 20 years and had a bunch of kids and all of that kind of stuff. And it's definitely not where I was when I was their age. So I think, you know, part of that is is different. The other thing is, I think, understanding why King was put forward as the face of the Montgomery Improvement Association um, and the Montgomery bus boycott movement. Part of the reason why they selected King was because he was relatively new to Montgomery at the time. And so because he was relatively new, uh, you know, he didn't necessarily, he hadn't been around long enough to cultivate any enemies. Um, And so they figured people would take the fresh vase and the fresh voice of it, um, of of, of him. So, you know, that's part of the reason why he was chosen. And so I think we also have to kind of think about what it means to be, you know, in the right place at the right time, and that seems to have benefited King.
0: Dr. King advocated, as we've discussed, for nonviolent protest, which I think people underestimate the degree of courage and bravery and physical bravery that took to be beaten by officers and law enforcement officials while you're standing up for independence and liberty and equal rights. Lately, I feel like in this country, there's a move back towards violence and protest. We have the insurrection from January 6th. What do you think King would think about violent protest in America today?
1: You know, I I am reminded of the fact that his youngest daughter, Bernice King, uh, you know, heads the the King Center and she does run a, a nonviolence program that particularly um, focuses on young people and teaching them the skills of conflict resolution. You know, the assumption is, is that King would still be promoting nonviolence. Um, we imagine that if you were alive and you'd heard Michelle Obama um, in 2016 say, when they go low, we go high, that that's definitely something that he would have Um, applauded uh, in in part because of uh, the civil rights movement and the fact that it emerges um, at a time where mass communication is really coming into its forefront. The contrast that that you could see between peaceful marchers dressed in their Sunday best being hosed down or having dogs sicked on them provided a contrast that really, I think in in many instances, emphasized the righteousness of the cause of civil rights um, during the long civil rights movement and perhaps the depravity of those who wanted to uphold and maintain the system of segregation.
0: We talked about the arc of Dr. King's reputation. If you'd indulge me in the counterfactual, and I'm sure you've gotten this question a lot, and people ask us about leaders who die young, if you could predict what the arc of his career might have been had he lived for several more decades, do you think Dr. King would have ever considered running for public office himself? How did he regard politicians? And do you think that would have been a possibility?
1: You know, I am I am not sure. It's not something that I would consider. You know, I think Claiborne Carson would actually probably be a better person to consider that. I mean, we know after the civil rights movement, there were people who were foot soldiers um, in the movement, some who held pretty prominent positions who went on to hold uh, public office at the local or, at least ran. Well, or national level. J- right. Jesse
0: Jackson ran for president. John Lewis was a member of Congress for many years. So
1: Absolutely. And and, and so uh, King wouldn't have had to have done that in order to hold his, his place in history um, or his place in the movement. I think people would have listened to him as an elder statesman in the movement, regardless of whether or not he held those offices. Um, and I think that there perhaps could have been a model— Um, Or he could have served as a model if he had chosen not to run for office uh, about how effective one needs to be. Um, The the political scientist Ron Walters talked about the inside outside strategy and about how um, as we move from protest to politics, as Bayard Rustin called for African-Americans to do in the wake of the imminent passage of the Voting Rights Act. Ron Walters argued uh, 20 years later that it was important for Blacks to be in elective office, to have a seat at the table, and then for Blacks to continue to use protest as a tool of agitation to keep elected officials who ran on pro-civil rights agendas honest, um, and then also to uh, set the agenda so that People could use protests going on on the outside as a means of convincing their colleagues on the inside of legislative um, offices that this is a um, that that we have to deal with these issues because the people are clamoring for change in that way. So I I think that one could make the argument that he could have been effective both as uh, you know an elected official but also as an elder statesman. Um, but I think there are others who could speak to the probability of his being willingness to do so. I think the big question that I have about King is as other issues started to come to the forefront. Um, would King have, you know, been, you know, as supportive of expanding our idea of what civil rights was? And so those are our questions that, that like economic uh, we'll rights will always have. Yeah. Like
0: economic rights and also the war in Vietnam. Yeah. He became so he witch. did
1: expand and it's a question of would he have expanded further? I mean, we could look at Coretta Scott King and, and so her embrace of those activities, her embrace of LGBTQ rights. Right. And I, I think the question would be of, of would they have been in lockstep with each other?
0: So as we commemorate Martin Luther King Jr. Day, if people want to honor him, what's the work of his that they should read and why is it Letter from Birmingham Jail?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to suggest a Letter from a Birmingham Jail, um, in part because it is short, um, but also uh it's incisive. And there are I mean, him- I just
0: think just just to just to so people know why I'm asking the question, I, I think it's one of the greatest works in the English language. I've had my children read it. I have my my little copy. Um in my basement office, which I read from time to time. It's really extraordinary. And if, and if anybody hasn't read it, read it. Because as the doctor will tell you, it's very powerful stuff.
1: Yeah, it's, it's powerful for a lot of reasons. So King is writing this letter to um, uh, white pastors uh, who were telling him that his agitation was actually undermining the civil rights movement. So there, there's this larger narrative there about uh, the role of, of, of white churches and their complicity with their silence um, and telling them that, yeah, no, this is the time to do this. Um, you're telling people to... Uh, to be quiet and to wait their turn actually is is actually not helping to advance the movement. So I see an indictment there um, that many people think about when they just want to kind of be comfortable and they don't want to ruffle feathers. And I think it really just very clearly and succinctly articulates what the goals of the civil rights movement are and why he needed to act at the time that he was acting. And I think that there are things that he can still speak to us 60 years later In you know, and just how he is addressing um, issues and it's a short read. So it's not like we're asking you to read a couple hundred pages.
0: I think it's a great lesson in writing. I mean, it's and it's not something he spoke. It's not a speech, but it it reads like something that should be spoken aloud. And I've spoken it aloud just because I think it's a great lesson in how to convey thoughts.
1: So, you know, I think there, there are two things. One, I uh, would urge people to move away from uh, their two dimensional characterizations of Dr. King. Uh, King, uh, you know, was a real person, complexities, contradictions, his views and his uh, tactics did evolve over time as he was confronted with new challenges and we need to take them at face value. Um, But the other thing that I'm struck by, especially in terms of his embrace of nonviolence, is that his goal was to affirm the humanity of the oppressors, to try to appeal to them based on their humanity, and to talk about redemption while also lifting up and affirming the oppressed and making credible demands for change. And I think in a moment where we are highly polarized, race being chief among those cleavages. Um, but there are other cleavages. But also at a time where people politically make sport of uh, demonizing their opponents uh, to you know make political points, it is a lesson in remembering not to other people. And I think that his understanding of nonviolence and how he articulates that stands as a a, a prophetic call for us to remember that you can oppose people without othering them, without demonizing them, and that when people are wrong, um, that there's a way to try to bring people along without necessarily seeking to try to vanquish them. And, and we've forgotten that, and I think they're really important lessons to us that apply not just to race, which we're still sadly dealing with today, but also apply to other cleavages in in our society.
0: Last question. Is there anyone on the scene today who you think is in the mold or in the spirit of Dr. King or is to make that comparison kind of blasphemy?
1: You know, I think one of the lessons that people learn not just from a fundraising and organizing standpoint uh is uh, from the civil rights movement is to try to uh, avoid kind of the singular leader model. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Black Lives Matter um, has tried to present itself as um, leaderful as opposed to having singular leadership. I think that, you know, many movements, you do need to have a, a clear and identifiable leadership team that's taking responsibility and is being held accountable for things. The message that, you know, I I think what most people try to do in response to kind of like what we saw happen to the the SELC, which never uh, went back to the heights that it had achieved during uh, King's tenure as president after his death is to try to think about the, the the tactics and to try to take up the posture and to make people feel empowered to do this in their own sphere, wherever they are. So, uh, you know, and I think also meeting this particular moment means, uh, means that you don't necessarily try to uh, copy King, even if you're trying to emulate sort of his spirit and some of the undergirding philosophies that informed why he took the actions that he did. I don't think we need to recreate King, but I think that there are things that um, lots of people can learn from um, and actually apply in their lives in their own sphere in the same way.
0: Dr. Andra Gillespie, thank you so much for joining us on this special day. Thank you. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to Cafe.com/slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-Preet or you can send an email to letters@cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam ozer and Noah Azulay. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the Cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Barara. Stay tuned.